0: Three Board Games Podcast for uh mid December twenty nineteen. Almost Merry Christmas to everyone. Happy holidays, that's what we say. My name is Tom Chick, and I'm not playing Troyas. Uh
1: my name is Bruce Garrick, and I'm not playing Dental Dungeons.
0: <laughs> is
2: that real? That's awesome.
1: No, it's actually not. But I just came <laughs> back from the dentist and my like, half of my face is numb, so uh, <laughs> I thought that would be something that I would have gone through as a dental dungeon. <laughs>
2: and this is hassan lopez and i am not playing carcassonne
0: oh good lord who is hassan talk about an outdated board game design yeah <laughs> i mean I, I mostly agree with you so yeah people
1: really well, like that game
0: No, well, it's you know it's, it's an oldie but a goodie people still like uh lots of old things it's like an antique car uh, it's a prestige item, I guess. Aren't there? Are there? Uh, does Does Carcassonne do the settlers of Catan thing, where they make a Star Trek version and a a, 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 a naval version? Like, are there a bunch of different Carcassonnes? I
2: th- I think I'm not. I don't think I'm making this up. I think there's a Star Wars
0: Carcassonne. Oh, uh, Garrick, you should ch- check that out. It seems right <laughs> up your alley. Oh yeah, I'd
2: love to play
1: that. Like um, like Hoth and to have a lot of like uh, right? base tiles. That, oh, that'd be great. No, I couldn't wait.
0: You know what? I'm going to go first, just to segue from science fiction into the game that I am playing. Uh, and I did this thing where... Actually, so here's the weird thing. Normally when I talk about a game, it's something that I own, that I've had, that I've mulled over. I've gotten to the table with some of my friends. I've looked at all the components. I haven't gotten to do that with this, because this is a game that oddly enough, after shortly after it came out, and I read a little bit about it, I read the rule book, I decided, I don't want this. But before it had come out, when I heard that it was on its way out, I was like, yeah, I totally want this. And then I just super cooled on it uh, by the time it was actually released. But then finally got to play it this past weekend and want to talk about something called Black Angel, Mm. which is a science fiction game I got not based on the the theme or the name of it. I got it based on these three names. And these are fun names to say if if you like Europe. The three people who made this game are Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier—I don't know how to say this in French—Georges, Jorge. I don't. Garrick, you seem like you would know that. If you're French and your last name is Georges, how do you how do you how do you pronounce that? Georges. Oh, good. Xavier Georges. I like that. Uh, and then Alan Orban. These three guys made Troyus, which is one of my top three games. I, I love Troyus. I think it's brilliant. I want to talk about one of the reasons that Black Angel is woefully short of, of Troyus's brilliance. Um, but because these are the guys that made Black Angel, I was super stoked. Then it came out. I read a little bit about it. Uh, and it seems like it takes some of the ideas of Troyus, it applies them to a science fiction setting, and then it proceeds to leech them entirely of all theming, <laughs> which I don't understand why they did that. Because also before uh, Troyes, uh, I think it was Xavier Georges, uh, made a, a game called Carson City, which is mm-hmm. a very thematically vivid Western worker placement game. Uh, As opposed about... to Troyas. Troyas is beautifully thematic, which is part wow. of the reason that uh, uh, that I have a problem with – what, why, okay, so explain to me first of all, A, how many times have you played Troyas, and B, why do you say it's not thematic? I can well, the, the first question. And the answer is one, right? No, I have played it two or three times. Okay,
1: I mean it's it's. Well, go ahead. I don't want to. I don't want So hijack, here, here's yeah. You,
0: so you go. here's why I, I think that Troyas is brilliant, and here's exactly what Black Angel doesn't do. Uh, mm-hmm. Troyas is definitely a, a euro. You know, no one would deny that. And Euros a lot of times will just bunt on theming; they can get away with it in, in a certain way. Uh, you might think that about Troyas when you when you first play it or when you have someone teach it, because it kind of seems that way. But I think the more you play Troyas and the more you see the different economic engines that can can unfold, the more you appreciate what Desjardins, Georges, and or or De, or or ban have created in terms of the theming in that Troyas starts with just three resources and they're colored there's red yellow and white and Garrick this is probably what you're getting at you're just shuffling around red yellow and white cubes and then right. at a certain point in the game you translate those to victory points right that's a very euro uh, approach to describe the game mm-hmm. but the unique thing about Troyas and why it's one of my top three games is that the economic engine that you feed these yellow, white, and red cubes into is different every game. It's Mm -hmm. completely modular. You deal out from about, I don't know, 15 cards at this point, there's an expansion for it. Uh, You deal out some of those cards, and only a couple of them for every game, and then they'll dictate what you do with your white cubes, what you do with your yellow cubes, and what you do with your red cubes. And once you look at these cards, because they've all got a name on them and then some mechani- mechanical interaction for how you use the cubes to translate into different resources, uh, how they're put into practice, how they address these crises cards. There are several systems in Troya's, and all of these cards that you feed cubes into address and interact with the systems in different ways. And what they'll do on each card is give it a name, And a lovely, lovely bit of artwork that looks like a stained glass window or something. And that name and that artwork and then the mechanical use of the cubes, how they interact with the systems, is the theming. So I just want to point out a couple of ways that Troy's is strongly themed. First of all, the obviously clear thing that emerges, and you learn this very quickly, red is military stuff. It's used to deal with crises on the board. White is religious stuff. It's partly used to build a beautiful cathedral at the end of the game, and people who help build the cathedral get victory points. And then yellow is economy, business, wealth. And it's how you get the coins that you spend to do different things in the game. So that's consistent every game, is the military deals with the crises, the religion builds the cathedral, and then the the yellow, the, the, the wealth, gives you the money that you need to do stuff in the game the cards that come out use all these in different ways so here's an example normally red cubes just help you fight stuff but if the mercenary card comes out red cubes also can be used to generate wealth the idea being that you're lending out this military as mercenary normally red cubes you pile them all on one crisis at a time You know, there are these crises that line up and they affect everyone. It's almost co-op. So I use a bunch of red cubes and I dump them all onto one crisis. You know, I choose, do I want to deal with the bandits? Do I want to deal with the religious heretics? Do I want to deal with the wolves? You know, and I put all those cubes on one card. If I have an archer, I can divide the cubes amongst different cards. The idea being that I'm sitting on the walls and I'm shooting at different targets. If I have a troubadour, I can turn red cubes into a resource called honor, and honor is used to manipulate the dice that are the workers, and that determine how effective your different actions are. So did the you just uh, do, give me the do...
1: role-playing explanation of the troubadour,
0: then. I did. did you just so, the, so the troubadour is basically uh, like his, he, like as kind of someone singing for the troops. He's like by interacting with honor he's uh he's like singing like their deeds like <laughs> sure bob hope exactly entertaining the troops uh I'll, I'll buy that or here's another example there's a religious card called uh the scribe and what he does is for every crisis you've defeated and you've done that with military he turns that into victory points the idea being that he writes about your military glories but he's a monk he's a religious card Um, the Templar, by the way, your religion, your white dice can be used as red dice. Suddenly your religious resource can be used militarily because crusaders are going off and fighting. So all this is to say, and it might take a while and you might have to do some like I did, did some role-playing jujitsu where you're, you're explaining what the troubadour is actually doing. But all this stuff, I think, leads to a really thematically rich economic engine built around a medieval village. Hmm. Uh, so, fast forward now to, and, and this is like 10 years old? Troy's has got to be super old. So, here we go. 10 years later, they do Black Angel, which is a science fiction setting. And they use a lot of the same basic concepts in Troyas, but they kind of dice it up and they they spread it out a little bit. It's sort of been rearranged the way that you might rearrange the ingredients at a Taco Bell or something. A lot of the same stuff is there, but it's arranged differently. But whereas in Troyas every single card has a name, you know, a, a banker, a scriber, a templar, a mercenary, an archer, a troubadour. In Black Angel, Nothing has a name. Right, right. You're doing these missions that you put out on different planets, and each mission becomes a worker placement uh, unit place, where you put one of your workers, one of your dice. Uh, they have no names. And they could. They should. Like, some of them give you resources. Some of them give you... And even the things that do have names are dumb. There's something called debris. When you repair something on the Black Angel... So it's science fiction. You're flying a ship... Uh, of, of colonists somewhere to colonize a planet. Your ship can get attacked and broken, and when you repair it, you take these little red cubes called debris. Now, I don't know what you guys think of when you think of debris, but I think of debris as something that you throw out that's of no use whatsoever. You got it out of the way, it's gone. Debris is, uh, it's useless. Mm-hmm. Sure. Here... Debris is a building resource. It's super important. It's something that you want. Debris you use to manipulate the dice. You use it to, to mitigate luck in this. Yeah,
2: uh, you, you glue shit back together again. The ship's back no. running. So.
0: Which yeah. I... You read Robinson Crusoe? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, but I, I love that idea. So, like call debris material or something or, or raw resources. Don't give it a name. And I don't know if this is a linguistic thing. I don't know if it's because they're French and maybe, I mean, debris even sounds like a French word. I don't yeah, know if so it has – Say it with a French accent and then it will work for you. Guys. Right, debris. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but, but I do think the theming – here's one of the obstacles to learning. So I don't own Black Angel. My friend who owns it. Uh, she's she's one of my favorite people to talk about rules and to parse rules with, uh, but she doesn't, I don't think, have the same... Uh, I love reading rules and teaching them. I, I think she just kind of sees it as a necessary obstacle to get to the game. I don't think she enjoys it as much as I do. So when we went over to play, and she, it was her copy of the game, she was going to teach it to all of us. The night before, I sat down with the rules and thought, okay, I'm going to, rather than just peruse through these, I'm going to try to read it so that I can help her teach the game. I could not get... First of all, not having the game in front of you makes it difficult enough, but just because of the lack of theming, because something called debris had it was like a useful resource, like it just wasn't making sense to me just reading the rules as they were written, yeah. and it's it's that much more difficult to teaching it to people who who haven't even tried to look at the rules, uh, and especially by the way. To people who don't know Troyas, because Troyas has a lot of unique interactions with the way that dice are used and flipped, and the way you can steal other people's workers, and Troyas does things that haven't been copied a lot for whatever reason. So if you don't know Troyas, and if you have a hard time wrapping your head around eurogame abstractions that that nobody bothered to theme, Black Angel is hugely inaccessible. Um, so you know, I went.
2: I've, go ahead. I've heard that. I've heard that about Black Angel, and I mean, this is a criticism I have a lo- of a lot of of straight Euro games, is I think that the publishers lean into the idea of language independence to so much so that they're reticent to name things. Yeah, right? yeah I that's think, actually a good point. I think they're they're just like you know the designers might have even during prototyping have come up with names for these cards and events because it helps them think about the design and build off of the design and then at some point maybe the publisher says nope let's just strip all that out just put the icon iconography on there and then like you said it becomes a bear to teach it takes you several games before you can wrap your head around the systems because you can't there's no hooks for you you know there's nothing to 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 lean into that you already have some familiarity with.
0: Yeah. I I once was asked by a young kid, why are you playing these board games? And just sort of just popped out of my mouth. I told him, oh, it's because I like sitting around a table and telling stories with my friends. Like I'm hugely – narrative is hugely important to me. I love systems, but above all else, I like narrative. And Black Angel has a cool narrative, but you've got to give it your own words. The the people who made the game – didn't do the linguistic work to help you in your imagination create the narrative. And that's, that's, a, that's an oversight because Black Angel, and now let me just explain it, if I were publishing Black Angel, here's how I would explain it. You are, and this is in the little intro, if you don't read the intro, which is italicized text at the front of the rules, which actually I normally skip, I think most of us do, uh, you might not know this. Each player in Black Angel is an AI on the ship. And that's kind of cool. So, your player board is this weird tile puzzle thing where you're sliding in tiles. And there's nowhere that it explains this, but it's this idea that you're programming your AI brain. And each of those tiles that goes in there could have some really cool, like, cyber, punk name or something, or something that relates to 2001 or HAL, or there's all this language in science fiction, or Isaac Asimov's Laws of Robotics, all this language in science fiction about robot consciousness could really be used to vividly illustrate what's going on with this idea of pushing these tiles onto your board and displacing other ones and making rows and columns that you activate. Um, That's a great concept. That's your AI brain. And then these other mission cards that you put out, they're just a color and and a result. But you could call that like colonizing a planet or mining an asteroid or exploring a nebula. Like all of those things could clearly be given this name and then therefore be much more vividly realized than, oh, I put a die here and I get a, a... Even resources in this game, they're called... Resources. They're these little <laughs> little clear diamonds, and they clearly represent like wealth or dilithium crystal, something rare. It's like the opposite of the debris. The debris are the raw materials. These are like processed wealth. And they call them resources. The resources mm-hmm. in the game? Resources and debris. <laughs> Ugh. Well,
1: uh, first of all, I think you buried the lead here because uh, why are little kids walking up to you asking you why you want to play board games? <laughs>
0: uh, because the the, question. the the child's mother wanted to play board games with us, and she came over, and he was sent off to like play on an iPad or something, but he wanted to gravitate over and see what the adults were doing. He was a very inquisitive child, yeah, Okay. who, who by the way, we're grooming to be a board gamer. Like he's only about 10 right now, and about six, eight years, he's going to be, I think, a regular fixture at our board gaming table. So. <laughs> cool. Sounds great.
1: Yeah, perfect. So, so Tom, uh, but uh, tell me this though: How does the game play? I mean, are you are you not able to? And this is a serious question; it's not meant to denigrate. Are you not able to engage with the game at all because of the lack of theming? Because. Uh, it sounds to me like any of these games, the way I see the Euros is that any of them could really – you could just take everything off and just – they could be abstractions. Yeah. Does it work as an abstraction as a system?
0: So I guess I guess probably what I might have – should have led with was uh, I, I like Black Angel. <laughs> like uh, I think it's a good game, and I'm looking forward to playing it again. I just wish that I could – there's no way I could bring this in. Half of the folks that are in our board gaming group would would never be able to play this and, and wouldn't want to. Uh, I would not force this off on our group because of the lack of, of theming. Um, so I liked it just because I love what these guys did with uh, Carson City, one of them originally. And then I love what they did with Troya's. So I like this game. I just wish that I could bring it to more people to play. Um uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. Is I, yeah, yeah, I I think it's a solid game that just doesn't get the support it needs to help people get it to the table. Uh, they really make it an obstacle to get to the table. Uh, and there's no reason for that. Just, just words. Words go a long way. Um, there's another really cool game I just got called uh, Ecos. In ECOS, and I'll just say real quick, ECOS is a euro thing where instead of us each having our own board, we're collaborating to put down tiles that build the world. We put terrain features on it, mountains and forests, and we populate it with animals. And we're all working on the same little world. But we've all got cards in front of us that, that are specific tasks to give us victory points. Like um, put a herd of antelope out. Um, put a hippopotamus near both water and land. Fly a stork across water. Uh, grow a mountain chain. We've got these objectives, but none of them. Everything I just said. Those words are nowhere on those cards. The cards are just instructions that could easily have a rich, you know, natural history uh, and, and geological formations of oceans and islands. All of that. There's a lot of words and terms you could call from that that those sciences. And these cards, they're just a list of instructions. Um, right. Right. So I, I love, you know, it's got cute little animal pictures. It's it's, it's, a, it's an adorable game, but these cards, which could represent, you know, natural disasters and migration and unique animal behaviors, none of those words are put there. You just have to use your imagination. So, mm. yeah. so uh, yeah, you know what? Just letting anybody who's making a board game out there, who's got cool mechanics, and some abstract ideas, they want to express things. I just want all of you making board games to know, my name's Tom Chick. I'm a writer. If you need someone to help you think up words, <laughs> I'm available. I will do that. <laughs> so, And, and no, by I, the way, I, I should have mentioned at the head, I do want to point out, uh, we'll talk about it more at some point. But Hassan, for instance, Hassan Lopez on this podcast just made a game called Maniacal. And Maniacal has... Hassan, the fact that you gave each room a unique name you know you you drew from the language i was watching Watchmen recently and Watchmen mm-hmm. talks about an intrinsic field and there's a card and we were we were goofing on this card's name because it's a it's a classic uh comic book or science fiction word that doesn't mean anything you've got an intrinsic field generator in there um mm-hmm. and you know you thought up those words you put it on a card that does something it's probably a science card. Um, it's thematically appropriate, and it's a hook for our imaginations. Right. That's the way you should make a board game. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, no, I, and and yeah, I mean, I would say that um, I, to me, it's an important part of the design process for sure. But I also, like, you were just joking about people should hire you to do this. I actually don't think that's a joke. I think that. I think like one thing I do during my design session is when I'm looking for names of things or thematic hooks I make a big Google, you know, doc and then mm-hmm. I I get my my playtest crew to start contributing ideas and they're they're just much funnier people than I am so they're able to to really throw in a ton of stuff into that list that I wouldn't have been able to come up on my own right and Right You know, one of these episodes previous, I think it was the last one, you know, Bruce was on with us, we talked about the importance of development in in a game, you know, in a game's Mm -hmm. lifetime. And I think this is something that could actually happen during development is then rather than stripping theme out of a design, adding more theme, thematic hooks into it so that it becomes a more accessible game. I I think Black Angel is a great example of a game that attracts the eye because, I mean, that's the thing that caught my attention is that beautiful, you know, artwork on the cover. And and then I knew the pedigree of the, the designers behind it. And then kind of like you, Tom, the more I started learning about it, the more hesitant Um, I got about the game and my my watches of playthroughs of it have kind of reinforced that that I that they they just let it become this abstract group of icons that I don't think would appeal to to me and my group. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So. uh,
0: All right. So Black Angels, my game, Uh, I would play it again. I just wish it were, you know, uh, uh, Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges, Alan Orbain. I would take a magic marker to your game if there were room on those tiles and, and write <laughs> words on it. So, mm-hmm. all right, well, Hassan, you've got. Uh, I think this is a is this a Euro game? What's this little ditty that I've I've seen this name all over the place? Here's I think I see this game on sale all the time, which can't be a good sign. No, it's a good, <laughs> it's a good. Sign. I'm gonna
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna advertise this game and say that this would be a great present to put under the tree or whatever you have for the holidays. This is a good choice Mm -hmm. um, if you're looking for something to buy for the family. Yeah, yeah, um, King Domino um, is a little game by Bruno Cathala, one of the the best French designers out there. And it it actually won the Spiel des Jahres award in 2017. So this was the best board game of the year in 2017. (laughs) You guys have to have played (laughs) it, right? I mean, this is it. but it, it's 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 a very light family oriented game and I, I think I I wanted to pick it for this podcast because it has been such a regular game in our household this past year. I would argue it's it's the it's the first game that my eight year old daughter has really developed an ability to not just play but but master. Like hmm. she can beat, beat us an equal number of times that we can beat her at this game. But i would I would also say that even though an eight year old is beating us at it, it's still an excellent game, like it's in a game that that you know a gamer can can fully enjoy, even though it is simple enough for a child to to play it and play it well mm-hmm. um, the The basic premise of the game is that you each player starts with a cute little castle. Um, and made out of cardboard, three-dimensional. And then you're gonna be building your kingdom around that castle using these domino-like tiles. That's where the, the name comes from. So they, they're rectangular tiles that have two sides to them, two squares on them. And those squares have a variety of different landscapes on them. That's, um, that's where a lot of the, the character of the game comes from, like forests and swamps and water and fields. And one of the, obviously, the critical rules in the game is that as you add those tiles to your kingdom, you must make sure that one of those squares matches up with something you've already placed in your kingdom. You know, much like in a, in a game of dominoes, you'd be matching up the sides like that. Mm-hmm. Um, another of the key rules is that your kingdom can never get bigger than five by five, basically. You can never have more than five squares in a row or column. So the the perfect kingdom is a perfect five by five square, which is actually challenging to do. And then the the third rule is that as you're placing these, these tiles down in addition to a landscape on the square, there might be a number of crowns on that particular square. So you might place a tile that has a forest with, with one or two crowns on it. And those crowns are crucial for scoring at the end of the game. You're going to score your kingdom by looking at connected areas of landscapes you might have like a a bunch of swamp all together right let's say you have five squares of swamp that's all connected to each other you multiply that by the number of crowns that are total within that swamp area so let's say i had three crowns times five squares that'd be 15 points you basically do that for all of your properties right that's that's how you do scoring at the end of the game um, the the strategy in the game, the cleverness of the game really comes from the the choosing or drafting of tiles. So let's say you know we, we were playing a, a four player game. Let's imagine that Mike was here with us. we're playing a four player game and there's four tiles out to choose from, right So we're each going to get to pick one of them. And let's say let's say Bruce is picking a tile right and he sees a he wants to build a giant, swamp next to his castle so he sees a that sounds great (laughs) so he sees a swamp tile out there and it's a tile that has swamp on both sides and it's got crowns on it it's just like it's the fucking perfect swamp that he needs for his (laughs) kingdom right so so he takes it he can take that tile but what that means is that because it's a valuable tile that means in the next round he's going to go later in turn order um the tiles all have a, a numerical value ah. associated with them, and so you order them up. Every time you lay them out each round, and so the better tiles, which are going to have more crowns on them and more valuable types of of territory on them, um, mean that the next time you choose, you're going to go later in turn order. So then, you know, when it's our when it's our next round, and there's some swamps out there, we're going to deny those to Bruce. We're not going to let him grab those swamps. So there's this there's this clever play between. Um, turn order basically turn order manipulation and drafting
0: tiles that are like the perfect match for your kingdom that's where the the strategy comes through it uh, i mean it sounds like except for that little drafting bit you've kind of described carcassonne though haven't you
2: yeah 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 i okay. mean that's why i sort of choose carcassonne i mean it's it's more spatially constrained than carcassonne right, right? right so it doesn't it can't like grow in a in an odd and and maybe even organic fashion it it is going to be a 5x5 five five grid but i much I, mu- I much prefer it to carcassonne I, th- I think carcassonne has some clever strategy and scoring stuff to it but um i really like the simplicity of that 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 interesting decision that it presents you with
1: right does it lead to does it lead to like because you're saying it has a, a fixed base does it lead to optimization
2: well it's 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 hard to optimize only in the sense that that the other players can easily mess with you right so you know, if if I see that you're focusing on forests, then it's easy for me to sort of grab tiles that you might be looking for.
0: Um, I would but then also you're say, stuck with the forest, though, right? Like it it sounds like the sort of thing where you might have to hurt yourself to also hurt someone else.
2: Um, not substantially. Everything okay. scores for you in the end, really. Okay. Um, so it's it's not it's not actually that painful to take something that somebody else wants. Um, and and I I'll say that it's it's just. There's a couple reasons why I like this game, like, you know, why I would say I, I recommend it. Um, I, I think that it has... For a little puzzle game, it has a surprising amount of personality. Um, you know, I think, Tom, you were talking about that role-player cartographer's game. The other. That's kind I of what think? I
0: was thinking yeah. of when you were describing this, is creating this little terrain, yeah.
2: That's right, that's right. And, you know, like, see, in that game, you can... Sort of infuse your your little kingdom with some imagination, and maybe some person might even name a forest like oh, "this is the forest of doom" or whatever. But <laughs> I actually find that that game, um, when I'm playing it, I'm I, I I'm mostly I, I'm mostly ignoring like what the kingdom is, and it's really just a point. Point game for me, sure, like sure. It, it loses its personality for me. I don't get that feeling with King Domino. Like as we're as I'm building my kingdom, like oh, I'm like oh yeah, I have this giant swamp outside my castle, and <laughs> and the tiles have this very quaint, cute, twee little. Like little pictures on them, like there'll be like a shadow of a dragon flying over a flock of sheep on one of the tiles, and it's really small and detailed, and you have to look carefully. But you're like, oh, I've got a dragon in my kingdom, <laughs> and um, so I, th- I really like that, and that helps with kids definitely.
1: So that's, so that's a presentation, solely a presentation thing. You're saying
2: that is that it's just a, it's just a little bit of additional detail on the on the tiles that that helps give the game some personality. But yeah, it doesn't have any gameplay repercussions
0: yeah do, do you know isle of sky Hassan?
2: yeah and, and and i would say that this is it's similar to that like there's a lot of like cool little details on those tiles right mm-hmm. um that you almost have to look carefully for on those ones
0: and, and isle of sky has that uh really weird and, and i think actually it's, it's a pretty strong hook for the design this idea that you have to price these terrain tiles appropriately like you're having right. to gauge much more uh, granularly, how much somebody wants something. Uh, <laughs> right. It's it's not something that I would throw your eight year old daughter into, for instance. Uh, right. So is that yeah. the one?
1: Is that the one where the where you you flip the cards over and they have a different like the 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 wizard standing on the roof or something like that?
0: Mm, I don't Which think there are that? wizards on roofs on Isle of Skye. Isle t- of Skye is a Scottish theming, but that's super light. Mm. It's basically Carcassonne, okay, it. but you assign values to the different tiles, and whatever gets bought, you get the money, and the one that doesn't get bought, you get to place. So you okay. want to make things expensive that you know people want, but not too expensive that they won't buy it. Uh, it's, it's a really weird economic balancing act that you've got to learn as you play, and it makes it interactive with each player's map. Like, you've got to look at who's building what. Because um, mm-hmm. it also sounds, too, Hasan, like, obviously, there's some blocking, but this sounds like a, a a kind of a multiplayer solitaire thing, where the main thing you care about is building your little scoring tile, Right
2: absolutely and yeah. and and to that end with kids it's it's nice because you you can play this game mean and over this past year we've got increasingly mean with yeah, each other right as you game.
0: learn right as you learn it i can imagine but, sure
2: but when you're first playing it you can even just help each other you can just say oh like look this you see how ah. this tile if you play this one here it's going to really help you and now you can think forward to the next turn and you can see how this one's going to slot in here right um, right but i i'd say that that like what you were just describing about valuation is an interesting thing in games, right? And and King Domino does have that a little bit. Like you might look at the lineup of four tiles and be like, Oh well there's a really juicy tile that's third in this lineup but you know what? I bet I can get away with choosing the first tile. It's gonna be good enough for me and then that's gonna give me first choice next round, right? Yeah, so yeah. I like that that's in here and I like that my daughter's getting kind of her first exposure at valuation. It's also interesting to see how the eight-year-old will almost impulsively go for the most crowns, almost always, right? Like, so like the valuation, she's still learning the valuation, right? Like she'll just see, like, I'm building a fucking gold mine. Don't you dare touch that gold mine. Right. It has three crowns. I'm taking it. Right. And but I'm like, but that means you're going to go last next turn. Are you yes, I don't care, right? It's this very instant gratification thing. But she's gotten better about it, um, like I said, to the point where we can now play honestly and she can still beat us at it. Right, yeah. right.
0: Uh, now, what is Queen Domino?
2: Um, I, I don't know a ton about it, but what I do know from what I've watched and read is that it's a more complex version of King Domino. So if you if you liked king domino but you wanted more or you were turned off by the simplicity of king domino then queen domino was kind of made for you it's it's a it's more of a gamer's version of this
0: are these aeg do you know who publishes these
2: um that's a good question i think
0: i think it's blue orange games oh yeah yeah yeah. okay right right sounds like this sort of thing i can even sort of see the color scheme sure Uh, and Uh, what what is bruno Catala mainly known for like why do i know that name
2: Oh, so much. Uh, five tribes, Cyclades.
0: Um, oh yeah, yeah, right. Designer.
2: Yeah, Cyclades uh,
0: is the one that I know definitely. Yeah. yeah. Tell, him
1: a, tell him to make a serial-themed version of this called King Vitamin, and I'll play it.
0: <laughs> Garrick, oh my God, you just dated yourself. Mm. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go ahead and date myself. Uh, when you were when you when you said you were going to talk about this, Hassan, I was assuming that it was called this because things fall over. Like for me, dominoes, this whole domino theory from the Cold War, is that the right. point of a domino is to fall over, not to connect to others of the same yeah. number. So that's right. what I thought of with dominoes. Uh, all right, Garrick, speaking of the Cold War, let's go mm. back a little bit. Yeah. What are you going to tell us about? And what if what if we can't get Mike Pullman for a fourth player? What are we going to do?
1: Well, then that's perfect because it's only a three-player game. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> we're going to talk about Churchill, which I just played recently uh, with a friend of ours. A mutual friend of ours, Tom, uh, HQ, uh, who is British. I hope
0: you got him to play Churchill.
1: Oh, uh, he definitely did play play Churchill.
0: I hope Uh, he role-played it as well with his accent.
1: uh, Well, he he didn't have to. He was, you know, he sounded (laughs) like Winston Churchill. (laughs) But... But it's a game that is designed for three players it is it came out in 2014 and uh talk about theming this is a game that mark herman who is a prolific game designer war game designer uh, decided to make that would it's it's subtitled well it's titled churchill and it's subtitled uh the big three uh struggle for peace and what it really is is putatively it's you are playing roosevelt churchill and stalin trying to win the war against the germans and the japanese but you're also sort of trying to position yourself for this you know post-war order uh which is i think tom the way you're talking about the uh, the time of the cold war you're sort of trying to establish your kind of political connections in in different countries and that's really what the game's about the an optimally played game just from a military standpoint, is trivial to win. It's it's trivial to have everybody cooperate and destroy the you know the you have these little blocks that move uh, across a, just a track. It's very there are no hexes. People who are listening to this thinking, oh my god, one of these war games. Now it's not. There are no hexes. Uh, they're just these tracks. It's basically like um, diplomatic Candyland. Uh, you just move your move your little blocks from from space to space. Do what it says on the space.
0: But real quick, just to interject here, speaking Mm -hmm. of theming, aren't those tracks like highlights of the war, like specific points? Yes. Uh, Yeah. So the theming, I mean, it's just one of the many systems. The actual war, but as that track moves along, it's definitely hitting these narrative beats in World War Two that you would recognize.
1: Yes, absolutely. And what you know, these tracks are. You know, you'll have. uh, You know, uh, there there are different tracks for the um, for the for example, the Americans have to. uh, move blocks across the blocks are what these called fronts the Americans have to move blocks across the Central Pacific and the South Pacific sort of um, representing their split uh, uh, resource allocation because the army and the Navy, you know had this um, uh, inter service rivalry the Russians are Russians only have one track really they have a second track in in Japan But uh, or in sort of Manchuria, but that, that doesn't come in until later and um, but the Russians are kind of stuck fighting the Germans until the allies can open a second front. Um, but the, uh, the, the key is that if you just all cooperate and you can, get your, you can get your fronts into Germany and into Japan quite easily, it's who's gonna get their fronts into Germany and Japan and who's going to move their blocks far enough to start placing um, markers that represent influence. And this is where the game becomes this three-way negotiation uh, game. And it's played on two different boards. There's the board, and, and usually this is the, the sign of, you know, this is a death uh, knell for a game. You've got two different boards. You're playing two different games. It's hard to figure out what you're doing. You can't figure out one thing to the next. Uh, you have to just constantly shift gears. But that Yeah, why
0: didn't Mark Herman just focus on a single board?
1: Yeah, so good question. So the, uh <laughs> The the answer is that he figured out how how to do it uh, without sort of diverting the attention, because what you see, you clearly see what you're trying to do. And I think this also has to do with sort of the World War II narrative. Anybody that plays this game or most people who play this game are going to sort of have a general idea of World War II, and you can clearly see, oh, you know, that's the Western Front, that's the Eastern Front, that's Italy. We're trying to move up here. We're trying to get into Germany. So you're thinking about what the situation is overall. And then you're on this other board, which is this. You know three tripolar um track that goes from one to seven on each side uh and what is in the center of this are all these issues and these issues a lot they're, they're basically action tokens let's call them so you what you're trying to do is you're trying to play a series of cards from your hand and the, the cards are everybody has the same um the same hand of cards they're shuffled uh, i think they're 20 something cards and it's it's just basically um numbers so there's a there's a an advisor and he has a number and they go from five to one basically um, but the key is that each advisor has different sort of special attributes so you might have an action token that gives you production um, and if you play this card on when you're debating production then you maybe get plus two or plus three so you want to sort of optimize your hand for the issues that are that are going to be debated and each time you uh sit down for one of these conferences because the conferences are supposed to represent these the times where churchill Stalin, and roosevelt discuss the progress of the war you choose what issues you want to debate and so you have this hand and you're thinking oh you know i want to maybe i want to maybe i want to talk about um about directed offensives. I want to get the Americans to give me uh, resources so I can fight on the Eastern Front. Or, oh, you know, maybe I'd rather have uh, strategic materials that'll help me produce. Or maybe I want the global issue, because there's also these three things, the the three powers are trying to uh, straighten out who's going to, the Americans want are anti-colonialist, the British are pro-colonialist. The uh, Americans are pro-United Nations, the uh, Russians are pro-Sort of, um, it's spheres of influence, or communist cadres, they call it, which is there's you know there's no there's no um, uh, there's no United Nations. Everybody kind of divvies things up, and then the um, the British want to free Europe, and the Russians want to split up Europe. So each player has a different issue that he or she is debating with the other players. So I mean, it's really a three-way thing. It's a triangle, and you're pu- putting these tokens. Back and forth uh between you and the players to your left and right and as you win these these this global issue it changes the way you can place things on mm-hmm. the map board and so mm-hmm. if you are the russians you can uh basically convince the british oh, okay you know what it's let's just let's just uh let's just divide up europe you guys take the east and or you guys take the west and we'll take the east And uh, you can't put any uh, political influence in any of these certain countries. And that is great for you because you don't have to start defending against, uh, you know, uh, influence into these into these countries that are in your sphere of influence. Or um, the Americans might convince the British that colonialism is bad. And then the Americans can start placing political influence in the British colonies. And, of course, political influence is equal to victory points. So. The problem with the game that our friend HQ had, and by the way, we played it with three people because it's a three-person game, Right. uh, and our friend Ken loves this game. And he says he would – He basically we played it an entire afternoon, and he – as soon as we were done, uh, he said, you know, I'd sit down and I'd play this all over again. But I can tell that (laughs) HQ is done. Uh,
0: (laughs) Now, it did – kind of sort of – is it a matter of Ken knows the game very well and therefore – throwing him into a game like this with a first time player, the first time player who's kind of learning the game and doesn't quite understand the systems yet is going to be discouraged at how much better Ken does, the guy who already knows the game. Is that a factor here?
1: I think it could be. I think also the thing is that I'm not sure that that the that I think I think Ken has a lot more um a lot more interest in the subject matter inherently than HQ does. So, you know, Ken's getting really wrapped up in the um in the uh you know the narrative and i don't and hq is looking at it i think a little bit more like um okay how do i my you know how do i get my beer to liverpool right kind right of just, right
0: <laughs> the, but kind it's not a beer. zero-sum game like that is it like it's, well, it's, it's the, yeah,
1: yeah exactly tom you that's that then that's the problem i think what you you and i played with a friend of mine um it's a very much a shifting sort of board where uh players are up and down um you can take other you can knock other people's political influence off which is uh, a huge you know victory point shift you have to decide ahead of time if you want to place political influence on the board you have to have basically an action token that allows it which you then have to fuel with a with a production because you have a limited production the americans have the most production the, the soviets have the least and you're sort of limited by how much production you have so uh, what the Soviets end up doing is they end up putting uh, American and British production direct offenses on the conference table to try to get that. Um, the, what they do is they sort of basically, the, the conceit is that they convince the Americans, British, hey, we, you ne- we need to help the Russians because they need to fight the Germans. So you get them to take the resources and basically allow you to advance your, right. your, your, your block. But I think that you have to play this game several times And then you realize that this really is – people, I think, play it as a war game where you're trying to get these victory points on the board, but it's really – and I think Mark Kerman's really done a great job of designing it. It really is a game about who ends up being best positioned for the post-war world, and that means you need to – get political influence into places and a lot of times people are just fighting over production i think you play the first game and you're just like oh I, I need to you know i need to advance this front i need to get this you know i need to get directed offensives i need to get production i need to get strategic material and because the swing isn't that big you know three political influences are worth a lot more than a couple of spaces on the on the map potentially mm-hmm. so it can be very frustrating when you think you're doing everything right. And then you count up all the victory points at the end. You're like, wait, wait, I lost. How, wait, I'm not even close. What did I do? How did, how did you get the, Oh, Oh, oh this game sucks. Right. And, uh, and I, and I, and I have limited sympathy for that because I <laughs> love playing games that you have to play over and over. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm going to play, I have a Ken, the same player who played Churchill. He's coming over uh, to play empire of the sun uh on thursday and i've played empire of the sun a times and i'm still learning new things about it and how to play and i'm looking forward to playing it again and i think the kind of person who's always looking to play a new game is going to be frustrated with Churchill because you're going to play it the first time you're going to think i this okay whatever and then you're going to move on you're never going to realize
0: how well designed the game is which uh, w- would you be fair to say then that i don't think churchill is very accessible because if i were to come over and play with you and ken right now you guys would me like a cheap violin like it it would be a matter of which one of you could better convince me the other one was winning uh like i, I it, it seems like it has that balancing act uh you know it's made for three players of course and it doesn't do that thing where okay the two people who fight each other they're both going to lose because they're wasting each other's resources it, because it's not that kind of zero-sum game it's right. more about in a way talking other people into doing what helps you most like it's all there's almost like a psychological element Yes. Uh, and i seem to yes yeah and i seem to recall when we played it i kind of felt a little cheap because i just felt if i were not, did i win when we played yes you did yeah mm-hmm. and i kind of felt cheap because i feel like i tricked the uh, not you because you knew what was going on i feel like i tricked uh was it evan it who did we tri- played
1: uh, no we played with uh uh trey yeah okay. Trey in, in north carolina
0: and I, fe- I felt bad because I felt like I mainly tricked him into helping me, and that's how mm-hmm. I won, not necessarily right. like because I knew the game better. And mm-hmm. and frankly, I love that in a game. I love psychological elements being present in a game like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't help but think that because that's there, because of the scoring thing you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. and because it's not – it's a it's a unique design. It's not something that – you could necessarily point to other games and say this is like this. I, is it fair to say it's inaccessible? It's it's not a very accessible game. I would say
1: that would be fair in a universe where people are lame.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me put it this way. How easy is it to teach and how long does it take to play?
1: So, I think it's not that I mean it takes probably I think it took us 45 minutes to to lay out the stuff for for hq um and uh we played it was probably a four or five hour game
0: okay so it's pretty, it's the only game you're going to play that night pretty much like when, yeah we, and
1: we didn't even play the full game we played the uh, tournament scenario
0: oh. oh my gosh wait a minute what there's a baby game
1: well there are th- there's a real baby game which is just like a few turns and then there's the the scenario that starts basically before d-day and then there's the, the scenario that's basically from 42 i think um, and so, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there are multiple different scenarios depending on how uh, many conferences we played the five
0: conference game. It sounds uh, like there's, there's a six full game and then there are limited game options. What did, what did we play when I played it with you? Uh, I think we, I think we played the full game cause we yep. had the whole day. We better damn well have. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, <laughs>
2: Brute yeah. Bru- is your favorite? The full game, Bruce? Is yes, it... absolutely. The game, the game
1: really has. When you play the full game, the British have a chance of saying, you know what? We're going to really commit everything to, to the China Burma India theater. Um, it's just a, it's a, yeah. It's, I think it's, I think it really shows. You, you have much more limited options when, uh, when you play the tournament game.
2: Gotcha. I, had, I have a couple clarifying questions. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so one is how is how is the asymmetry between the sides expressed? Because clearly there's there's something going on there. Is it like unique decks of cards to the three sides, or yes. so uh, each, powers each, that they have, or well,
1: each side. Ha- well, first of all, each side has different numbers of uh, production uh, points, which are very um, uh, very important. Like how many how many production tokens you have. I think the Americans have. Four, sorry, the Americans I think have five, the British have four, and the Russians only have three, and that's actually a huge, huge difference um, when you uh, when you're playing the game. So your um, your uh, ability to sort of move and and uh, and control the control your um, I don't know what you call it. Your, your options are limited when you don't have that much production. So you're, the Russians are trying to get production from and, and direct dependencies from other people. The Americans are trying to figure out what to do with all their production, you know, whether to help the British or the Russians or to try to put it in the Pacific. Um, but the card decks themselves, you know, they have the same numbers on them, different pictures, obviously, because they're different advisors, but they have very different, um, very different uh, bonuses. So, you know, the British, I think, have more on the global issue. Uh, the, the Russians have uh, several that are good on the A-bomb, um the americans I, have different things like that
0: how, how then do they make up for the fact that the russians have so much less production than, than america what do the russians get to offset that
1: well the russians only have one track that
0: mean they uh-huh. right the very good they only have one place so, they need so to allocate only, the resources right. yeah the
1: american the americans have five but they have uh you know the western front and then two fronts in the pacific which is a giant pain because uh, they can't one can't get out in front of the other because they're going to lose victory points for uh, the um uh, um inter service rivalry. So
2: there's which, which side do you give to newbies? Like which is the ah, right. the, new, the newbie friendly side?
1: Uh, generally the British because the British have a there, there's this whole idea of setting the agenda of the conference and you bid, and you bid cards at the beginning uh, of, of each conference and it's the high card versus the low card, not the not the high card versus the second card, but the high card versus the low card. And um, the British get a plus one to any card they play, and then that allows them to choose one issue and move it that many steps towards them on the little track before the conference even begins so um so you generally it's nice to be a be somebody that's always um, that is always uh getting something at the beginning uh The Americans are a little tough because they do have those three fronts they can really you can really get uh bogged down and um, you know Oh, God, I forgot the Pacific, and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, just, I think the British are the be- are the easiest to play.
0: Gotcha. Uh, Garrick, you know you know Greenland, right? Have we ever actually played Greenland? I have played Greenland, but not with you. Because Greenland also, I think, is another game. I mean, it's a Phil Eklund design, for all that mm-hmm. implies, uh, but it's also a game specifically made for three players. Right. with This whole idea of how do I make a game where the two players who fight each other lose and the guy who sits out wins. Right. Um, And we didn't get to play the quartermaster general set in the cold war did we no we did not okay because that's another one too i love the asymmetry in that three very different sides it just uses Mm -hmm. the quartermaster general concept but it uh it it just does very interesting things and and again a lot of that is psychological like how Mm -hmm. will you do in cold war is how well i can convince you that Hassan is winning and we need to stop him Mm -hmm. uh like I, I love that kind of mechanic, uh, in especially Cold War and this kind of, and, and like something like Churchill, where you're all putatively on the same side, but right. not really. Yeah, right.
2: I, my, I, I like those games too, Tom, and I, I my group definitely does. I, I two of the guys in my group I think love psychological manipulation games. They'll mm-hmm. they'll try to infuse any game, even the most abstract Euro, with negotiation <laughs> and social manipulation. Um, but I, I think one downside to it, and this gets to something maybe Bruce was talking about with with the emotional response of the players, is yeah. is that those games can make one person feel very clever, but another person feel not very clever, right? Uh-huh. And, yep. and maybe exploited and walk away from the table with a with a bad taste in their mouth. And uh-huh. I mean, you have to have a thick skin, I think, when you play games like this and not take things too seriously. But when there's a, a when there's like a an actual like, social psychology element to gameplay and to succeeding in a game, I think that that carries a different weight with it. Um, I think there's an emotional cost that sometimes takes a toll on certain players.
0: And in a way, Hassan, I would say that emotional cost is kind of commensurate to the, the playtime. Because yes. if you, that's why, yes. so that's why these social deduction party games are so short. I mean, that's why you can get away with that with a short social deduction party game, but whereas right. something like this that takes four or five hours, uh, the person it's like who, I've
2: been lying to you for three hours. Exactly. You, oh,
0: oh, and yeah. and then the person who feels dumb or who feels like shut out has to sit and stew with that feeling for a few hours. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, but I think when when all three players understand that about a game, there's nothing quite like that just that triangulation of knowing oh i think i got him to think that but then he's actually thinking something else like I, I think when that works it's just it's beautiful and there's nothing quite like it but it is tough to to find the right people for that yeah
1: yeah i think that's i think it's a game that really benefits from three people who know it and like you get all yeah. you all three you You're like hey you guys want to guys want to play churchill next week I'm like yeah let's get it let's do yeah. it call call so and so and we'll we'll get it down and then that those games
2: are great Right. Do you guys know about the the world board gaming championships that takes place I think it's in like Lancaster Pennsylvania yeah.
0: At one point. what wait a minute what what is this so
2: I, I I suggest that Bruce go enter into it for a variety of different <laughs> games what would be your game Bruce that you think you could place the highest
1: oh god I would be I'd be crushing every game I uh, <laughs> oh um no you know it's those those games the ones that they have the the real uh, they have this uh old one where it's the uh, the avalon hill classics like the Corps stalingrad yeah. um they have the russian campaign but i mean you look at those things so i've been to avalon con it used to be called avalon con then avalon hill went out of uh, business and they called it uh, they kept it going and uh, they kept it, called it the world board gaming championships or wbc but um go, go and just google uh, wbc uh, winner some war game tournament and it's like the same five people for 20 yeah. years
0: yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah.
1: so my chance would be of winning actually winning any of those would be zero
0: wait so people go there and they pick their, their board game they're good at and they compete oh yeah like all board games it's not just like nerdy man board game war games no it's nerdy man board games it's oh, mostly, oh, oh! it's mostly that I
2: think they've 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 got they've infused it with more over time. But yeah. like Bruce was saying, it's the roots of this is are in Avalon Hill war games. Like I, I see. the one game I was I was I was tempted to want to try was Titan because I, I really oh. Uh, oh. I know. I know. It's a, <laughs> now, now I look on. Well, no, I still have a great deal of fondness for Titan. There's parts well, of that game I Garrick,
0: love. Yeah. You and Garrick could uh, go head to head with that forever. Yeah. Um, well, but let me but, tell I'm, you. Yeah.
1: I, I've played in the WC Titan tournament.
0: Have you? Ah, oh. multiple times. Oh, see,
2: this is we got to talk more about this.
1: Yeah. And and you know you know how well I did?
2: Not very. <laughs> yeah, that's that. I'm sure that that would happen to me. I mean, but part of me would be fascinated by the experience to go up against those guys and see how they played this game, right? Yeah. And just what like the different level that they're on because yeah, oh, yeah. last time I checked. Like the people who win that titan tournament it's like i see the same names yeah. like it's over like and over two over, guys and, over. over yep. and over again
1: yep yep and I, I even i used to remember their names because i met the, them several times because i played and uh but i can't remember anyway that yes it's it's really a case where you there, i mean it's hey you know it's just like uh tom you won't understand this but it's just like sports <laughs> uh, <laughs> where, there, where there are there you know tennis players and and uh, you know who people who uh who just are really good at these individual games and then just keep playing them and winning them
0: i would say i could be the magic johnson of maybe king domino <laughs> that, would, that would be where my career would peak let's
1: yeah. let's let's get you into some of the uh some of the king domino uh sort of uh, regional events and see how yeah yeah around.
0: exactly well i'll start yeah this, this will be quite the the cinderella story for me i'm yeah. sure sounds no, good <laughs> all right so uh, there's some black Angel, some king domino and some churchill Man, that's quite an odd assortment. Mm. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Bruce Garrick and Hassan Lopez. Uh, Again, happy holidays, everyone. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks to talk about more board games. Cheers. (laughs)